Can I start by asking God to help us? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the privilege of studying your word to us in English. And we pray in particular for those whose first language is in English, that you might help them to follow and to understand your word. Heavenly Father, you are our shepherd, and we do pray that you will lead us on to maturity and to godliness. And that as we have need, that you will rebuke, correct, comfort and encourage us. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Is religion just a matter of opinion? I suspect the conclusion reached by most people, at least here in Sydney, is that there are no certainties. Now, perhaps this reflects the fact that we are surrounded by a variety of conflicting opinions about God. But whatever the reason, religion is considered a matter of taste, much like music. You like Guy Sebastian. I like Eskimo Joe. Religion is just a matter of opinion. And what is important is finding beliefs that suit you. I'm not sure that quoting Homer Simpson is the best way to start a sermon. After all, the father in the television series The Simpsons is probably better known for his weakness for beer, pork chops, television and donuts than he is for insightful comments about life. However, some time ago, one particular scene in an episode caught my attention. Now, it starts one cold Sunday morning. Homer splits his pants as he dresses for church and decides not to attend. Besides which, the sermons are boring and if God really wanted people to go to church, Homer figures, he should have made the week at least an hour longer. Homer's decision to abandon church leads to a rather heated argument in the household, but Homer sticks with his argument. What if we pick the wrong religion? Every week we're just making God madder and madder. Now this being television, the story doesn't end there. That night as Homer drifts off to sleep, God appears to Homer in a dream. Homer's sitting on the lounge in front of the television and is interrupted as God lifts the roof of the house off. He is seen from the flowing beard down, wearing, as you would have guessed, sandals and a robe. But God is in no mood for pleasantries. Thou hast forsaken my church, he thunders. But Homer in his defence replies, I'm not a bad guy. I work hard and I love my kids. I figure I should try to live right and worship you in my own way. God, who I was shocked to hear had never heard this argument before, <laughs> seemed quite won over and acknowledges the point and pets the family cat on his way out. Now I think that this scene captures so well the spirit of our modern culture. Did you see that Homer is not even sure whether he's picked the right religion? He seems to have given up on finding the answers to life's important questions. And in his own words, he's just going to try and be good and worship God in his own way. But friends, the question is this. Is religion just a matter of opinion? Or to put it in Homer Simpson's words, are we free to worship God in our own way? Let's take a look at Psalm 19. You'll notice that in the subscript under the heading, King David identifies himself as the author of this glorious psalm. 
And as you look at the psalm itself, in verses 1 to 14, there are two quite distinct parts to it. You may have noticed that as we read through the first time. In the first six verses, David speaks of the creation. In the remainder of the psalm, he speaks of the law. But the one idea that goes through this whole psalm is that God reveals himself. He makes himself known. Firstly, in creation. Have a look at it with me in verses 1 to 6. Let's read it. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. Great lines, aren't they? You don't have to be an art critic to appreciate the wonder of the sky by day and night. I'm sure that you've done the same thing as me. At some point you may have sat and watched the sunrise or you may have been out camping and looked at the night sky and all its splendour. But David, as you'll notice in Psalm 19, as he looks at the sky, he sees something more than just something spectacular. He actually finds a message. Have a look at it there with me. You can see that this idea is repeated. Read with me in verse 1. The heavens declare. The skies proclaim. In verse 2, they pour forth speech. They display knowledge. And in verse 4, their voice goes out. Their words go out into all the earth. What is the message? The message is that what you are looking at has been created and it speaks ultimately of the glory, perhaps the word we might use is greatness or majesty, of the creator. It's not that David hears a literal voice from heaven, but he recognises that the creation is literally bursting at the seams with a sense of the greatness of its creator. And the heavens speak this message to everyone. You don't have to have a Hebrew accent to hear that message. You can see that in verse 3. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. Something of God, something of his enormous power and his rule over all things can be known from the world around us and is available to anyone who lives in it. If you slept through the first time, David repeats the idea with a slightly narrower focus. Have a look there at verse 4. In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run its course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. David knows how glorious a sunrise can be. It's like a bridegroom appearing on his wedding day like a champion athlete running his course. But the key words in these verses are he has pitched a tent. He, i.e. God, has actually ordered it in this way. The sun is very impressive, but it actually points away from itself to the impressiveness of the creator who set it up that way. And David writes that anyone on earth can appreciate what he is talking about. As we read again in verse 6, it rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. 
I remember being at a scientific conference some time ago now and listening to one of the speakers and he showed this quite striking slide of a single immune cell and it was taken with an electron microscope. Now I acknowledge that this is an extremely nerdy illustration but uh, <laughs> please bear with me. It was taken out as just as it was reaching out to a bacteria cell and I must say it was really strangely beautiful but I was quite stunned when the speaker made a comment that he had no idea who or what made this, but that it didn't just happen by accident. He acknowledged that he wasn't very religious, but I think he was voicing something of David's wonder, even if it was a very different part of creation. I'm not trying to suggest to you this evening that Psalm 19 is a science textbook. I don't think it actually makes that claim, and so I wouldn't want to make that claim either. But it reminds us that as we in our various ways explore, enjoy, study and investigate the world, that it actually points us beyond itself to a truly awesome creator. But more importantly, it suggests that there is one God and that there is one universe. And that means there is one reality. We are surrounded by a variety of religious opinions, friends. But sadly, some of them are mistaken. Perhaps all of them are wrong. But all of them cannot be correct. We're living in one world and there is one reality. But there's a problem. There are limits to what we can know of God from the world. Have a look again at Psalm 19. And if you look very carefully at those first six verses, David makes no response to the creator. You see, the creator of the universe is beyond our normal experience. He's greater than our expectations. He's more impressive than any mere human categories. Even John Calvin writes, when the heaven of heavens cannot contain him, how can our minds comprehend him? We are left with a curious sense of awe that there is something more than what we see, but our curiosity is not satisfied. The problem is that creation reminds us that God is there, but it doesn't actually teach us how to worship him. But the problem lies not only in what has been revealed, but also in us. Now we'll turn to our second reading in Romans, but probably the most helpful thing is just to take out your outline and you'll see it recorded for you there. Paul and the Romans, much like us, found themselves in a society of many different religions and opinions about God. Have a look there at verse 19. What may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. And you'll notice that Paul agrees with David, that there's something of God's rule and power that can be known by just observing the things around us. Now, the very big but is what people do with that. Read with me in that uh, passage there. But in verse 18, they suppress the truth. But in verse 21, although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But in verse 23, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man 
and birds and animals and reptiles. Do you see what he's saying? People turn away from the true God to worship idols, to follow man-made religion. God gives us a universal message which speaks of his lordship over everything, but we universally will not listen. At this point, you may be thinking to yourself, well, Andrew, I don't actually bow down to statues, but that misses the point. The scene that I related to you earlier captures the idolatry of our age. You see, both Homer Simpson and all of us have the same problem. We do want to worship God, but we want to do it our own way. Do you think that following the God of your own opinion is a new thing? No, friends, it's as old as idolatry. God's response to this in verse 18 is wrath. And that's a word that means intense anger and indignation. A deeply disturbing word. But a warning to us that worshipping God in our own way is actually the heart of the problem in our broken relationship with our creator. Fortunately, both the Bible and Psalm 19 don't end at this point, so why don't we return to it and see what else it has to say. Now, we're looking at verses 7 to 14, and as we read through the passage earlier, it might not have seemed very obvious what point David was trying to make. But the point is this. In the first six verses, we looked at how God shows himself in creation, and now in the second part of the psalm, we'll see how God has spoken in the law. Let me show you. Often a helpful thing to do when you're stuck with a tricky Bible passage is to look for words, phrases or ideas that are repeated. And one thing that really stands out is that the word LORD, L-O-R-D, all in capitals, is repeated numerous times. In fact, you'll see it seven times between verses 7 to 14. The word LORD, all in capitals, is the way the translators have decided to represent God's name, which is found in the Old Testament. It's a name that God gave to the Israelites when he rescued them from Egypt. By contrast, and have a look closely, that same word, L-O-R-D, all in capitals, doesn't actually come up in the first six verses at all. Now, perhaps an illustration might help. When you hear John Howard, the Prime Minister of Australia, being interviewed, you'll hear journalists address him as Prime Minister Howard. It's a formal title. That's how he's known to journalists. But I'm sure that when he's at home... His family don't refer to him in that way. They probably know him as John or Dad, and that's much more personal. And that's roughly parallel to what David is saying. Do you see that in the first six verses, God is referred to as God in verse 1. That's quite a distant and formal word, like calling John Howard Prime Minister Howard. In verses 7 and following, God is referred to as Lord, all in capitals, repeatedly. It's God's special name that he's given to the Israelites. It's like being able to refer to the Prime Minister as Dad or John. The person is the same, but the relationship is distinctly different. What David is saying is that he knows God personally, or as we might put it, on a first-name basis. Has David just contradicted himself? Well, why don't we look to see how David justifies such a claim. Now, we're going to need to look closer at verses 7 to 11. And you'll notice there that David makes six statements. The statements seem quite similar. In fact, there's almost a certain pattern or rhythm to the statements. Read them with me. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. 
The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. And on he goes. You'll notice that the six statements are essentially very similar. And I think that each of these is just an elaboration of essentially the same idea. Now, perhaps the most simple way of explaining this is to put it into a table form, which I've done for you and you will find on the second page of your outline. In thinking about how David knows God so personally, I think three themes seem to stand out. Firstly, that God has spoken. Look there in the first column. David is reflecting on the law of the Lord the statutes or testimony of the Lord. We might say witness of the Lord. The precepts and commandments. Now, I think these are all just different aspects of the law. When we read there the law of the Lord, we probably think of law in the sense of rules. But law in this context means the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. It does contain commandments, but it contains a whole lot more as well. Promises, instructions, history. But David's key point about the law is that it is actually of the Lord. He has spoken it. This is a really important point. In the law, God has spoken. Secondly, as God speaks, he tells us what he is like. I refer to you to that second column on the outline. As David describes the law in the second column... He uses words like perfect, trustworthy, right, radiant, pure and true. These are the kind of words we could use and in fact are used in the rest of the Bible to describe God. And I think that's exactly the point. As God speaks, he invites us to know him as he is. I've been married for a couple of years now, but I'd heard of my wife many years before we actually started going out. She was a friend of a friend, and her name was occasionally dropped in conversation. How did I get to know her? Well, obviously I asked her out on a date, and we did the uh, spit bridge to Manly Walk. Did I do this because I wanted to impress her with how much of a rugged, outdoor type of guy I was? (laughs) No. At least, not much. (laughs) Really, the walk was unimportant. I asked her to go walking with me because it was an opportunity to talk with her. The only way to develop a relationship with a person is to speak with them. And in Psalm 19, David wants to say that God makes himself known as he speaks. This is the wonder, of course. The heaven of heavens cannot contain him, and our minds could never have comprehended him. Yet as he speaks these words in the law, the eternal creator opens his very heart to us. If we think the night sky is impressive, we'll take a look at the first five books of the Old Testament, the very words that God has spoken. And thirdly, as the God who made the heavens and the earth speaks to us, it profoundly affects us as people. See there in the third column, it revives the soul, it makes us wise and gives us joy. As Russell so helpfully pointed out, knowing God is not merely abstract. It's not merely intellectual. It actually involves the whole of our being and the whole of life. But how does this apply to us? If God has spoken to the Israelites in the law, then how does he speak to us here in Chatswood now?
Well, that's where our other reading will come in, in handy and you can find that again in the outline. It's from Hebrews chapter 1. If you read there with me from verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Lots of really important and complex ideas are packed into this short reading, but I just want you to notice a couple of things. Notice that God is still a speaking God, and yet we have a clear and final word from him in his son, Jesus. Here is the up-to-date word for our confused modern society, because in these last days... He has spoken to us by his son. Like the law, as he speaks to us in his son, God actually tells us what he is like. In verse 3, the son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. The God you cannot see is shown to us as the son. And that's really an astonishing thing, isn't it? That the creator of all things, from the glorious night sky to immune cells, has appeared among us. You simply cannot get a better idea of what God is like. God has communicated with us, clearly and finally. No wonder the gospel is good news. But it also means an end to other options. Do You see, if God has spoken, to ignore Christ or to treat him as one option among many, is actually to suppress, distort or ignore what God has made plain to us. It's just another form of idolatry. If God has spoken, then religion is no longer a matter of opinion and it really means an end to worshipping God in my own way. If God has not spoken then Christianity, I think, should be rejected on its own terms, not just as a sham, but as another form of idolatry. There is no third option, really. It's either a word from the Creator or it's just another way of avoiding the true God. Recently, I had lunch with a, a good friend of mine. He's from a Malaysian-Chinese background and his sister had become a Christian She'd made it clear to the rest of the family that she felt she could no longer take part in the family's ancestor worship. My friend was obviously quite angry and sitting there at lunch, I couldn't help but feel uncomfortable. I think he was offended that loyalty to Christ went beyond loyalty to family and to culture. I felt uncomfortable because it seems arrogant to suggest that all people, regardless of background, should turn their worship to Christ. But on reflecting on this passage, I have realised that it would be arrogant. Unless, of course, he was the one who created all Malaysians. It would be arrogant. 
unless he was the exact representation of God's being. It would be arrogant unless, of course, Christ is God's final word to all people. And if these things are true, then it is appropriate that all people worship him and him alone. We'll flick back to Psalm 19 and we'll wrap things up. If God has spoken to us in Christ, then how are we to worship him? Really the question is, how do we worship a speaking God? Have a look at verse 14. As God speaks to him, how does David respond? Verse 14. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. Notice that David listens with humility. David is praying not that God will meet his expectations, but that God will help him to change his expectations. We worship God not by suiting ourselves, but by bringing ourselves into line with what God has spoken. Notice that he listens prayerfully. When David writes, May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, he is praying, he is praying urgently and fervently that God will continue his gracious work of transformation by his word. One of the saddest things I have come across in my Christian life is the number of people who call themselves Christian but just still want to worship God their own way. People who want the truth just as long as it isn't too inconvenient to their chosen lifestyle. People who anticipate that God will meet their every expectation, but that they are free to suit themselves. People who won't listen to God speak, either by defiantly ignoring the bits they don't like, or by investing so little of their own precious time trying to understand what God is saying. I know lots of people like that. And sometimes, sadly, I am one myself. Friends, be encouraged. God has spoken to us in Christ. It is only appropriate that we ask God to help us to please him with our whole lives in response to his great message. That's true worship. That's true religion. Why is it that we fail to respond to God in this way? Certainly we don't pray like this when we forget God's mighty power at work in the world he has made. We don't pray like this because we forget that studying the Bible is a relational activity with a God who speaks to us. We stop praying because we stop listening to God as he speaks to us in his Son. How do you need to change to respond to what God has spoken to you? Friends, let us listen and respond to our maker as he speaks to us in his son Jesus. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. A wonderful response to the God who speaks. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, indeed we thank and praise you that you are a merciful God, a God who has not left us in the dark, a God who reveals yourself. Father, we thank you for the revelation we have in the glorious creation around us. We thank you for your servants, the prophets, for those who spoke your word. But Father, we thank you that you have spoken to all of us so clearly 
and finally in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask, Lord, that you help us. Help us to have an attitude like David, to want to live to please you, to be prayerful, and, Father, to to worship you in our everyday life. Father, we pray that you will bless us with maturity and with godliness. In your Son's name we pray. Amen.